you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids' club. This summer, we have been walking through a series in the book of Psalms, obviously not covering them all, taking a selection of them. We've called our series Songs for Real Life, because as you walk through the Psalms, you find any litany of emotions, any litany of experiences, a lot of things coming to the surface, which are really helpful for the human experience. You know, there's parts of the Bible I read, uh, looking through the early part of Numbers, where there's lots of genealogies this week, and you go, hmm, how do I apply this, other than having children? But sometimes you come to the Psalms and you you look at these, it's easy to find yourself in the middle of them because there's situations and scenarios we commonly find ourselves in, whether it's a Psalm 51 needing to confess sin or any other litany of other situations. And this morning we find ourselves in Psalm 90. As with all of our Psalms, I'll start you with a quote. This one's from Gordon Fee, a Canadian New Testament professor. It's good to see the Canadians bringing us some solid theology. It says this, the Psalms, like no other literature, lift us to a position where we can commune with God, capturing a sense of the greatness of his kingdom and a sense of what living with him for eternity will be like. As we walk into Psalm 90, let me read it to us. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but a yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath are we dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass under like your wrath. We bring, your, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason a strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are gone soon, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90. As we open this 90th Psalm, even in the subscript, you find that it is written at the hand of Moses. Not a common psalm writer, In fact, uh, this makes us the oldest of all the psalms, and evidently the only psalm that Moses wrote. We do know he was a poet, uh, but this is the only psalm he wrote that is preserved in the book of Psalms. And you have this guy, Moses. 
One of the greatest guys of all the Old Testament is mentioned 767 times in the Old, 79 times in the New Testament, lived in the 13th century, about 3,300 years ago. Moses, born into slavery. His mom took a chance, put him in a basket, and he's found by the daughter of Pharaoh. And he lives for 40 years in the house of Pharaoh. Spends another 40 years in Midian as a fugitive running from Pharaoh after killing an Egyptian. So again, we find in Scripture a guy that the Scriptures lift up who happens to be a murderer. And then ultimately he finds redemption in his last 40 years, devoted to leading these Israelites out of bondage in Egypt into the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. You find most of his story in the book of Exodus. But keeping this psalm in the perspective of Moses changes how we read it. And so we got to keep that in light as we work through it this morning. So in verse 1, when Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have to stop for a moment and put this in Moses' context and not in yours. When Moses says, you have been our dwelling place, literally our protective shelter. You've been our shade. You've been our refuge. You're caring for us. And you put that in the perspective of Moses, you have to appreciate that in 1300 BC, if Moses logged into Ancestry.com, he would have quickly found that all of his ancestors for 400 years were slaves, both on his mother's side and on his father's. So when Moses says, God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, and he says that from this perspective, knowing that all of his lineage were in harsh, harsh slavery in Egypt, that tells you something. And in fact, it starts to strip away a little bit of our Americanization of theology when we think that God blesses us only with financial means. When God blesses us only with the things of our hands. Moses looks and says, God, you've been faithful to us always. You've protected us. Even when we were forced to make bricks, hours upon hours at end after end after end, human trafficking at its worst, Moses says, God, you've been faithful. You have protected us for all generations. And this is where Moses, having authored the first five books of your Bible, including all the genealogies and numbers, has a lot of perspective that helps put this together. And he continues on in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. So when Moses looks forward, looks back at God's faithfulness, it doesn't just stop at who my mom was, and who my mom's mom was, and who my dad was, and who my dad's dad was, and who my dad's dad dad was. He looks back and say, before the mountains were formed, day three of creation, you were God. And even before that, you want to flip a page over Genesis 1-1, turn even further to the left of that blank piece of paper. You don't know why it's in your Bible. That day, God was God, and he was faithful. Moses wants to take it all the way back to establish God's faithfulness, even from the beginning of creation. God has been our shelter and our protector, taking care of us as far back as man can reach. And he pushes it the other direction in verse 3. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, 
So having pushed God's faithfulness as far back as creation and even before, he now looks to a point where you die. Not only will you die, but your children will die, and your children's children will die unless the Lord returns. God will still be faithful. This is Moses' sure foundation in this passage, that God is faithful, that he is our dwelling place, that we are to be found in him and in him alone. And having looked at the grand scheme of time, he even boils it down to the moment you live. To the little moments, these little wisp moments that we breathe. In verse 4, just got louder. God wanted you to hear that. Verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are at, but yes, <laughs> I lost myself. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So when you consider God, when you remember yesterday, and I don't know what all you did yesterday, but when you remember it, that's like a thousand years to God. Or if you served a watch in the night last night, which would be standing outside for four hours, if you were a mom or you have a baby, you might have done this. That's what a thousand years is like to God. And Moses starts to put some perspective on this for us, that our God is not a finite God as we are, as we would understand him. But in fact, he's an infinite God who knows no boundaries and nothing, not even time, can contain him. One of the funny things about having a kindergartner in my house is he wants to ask me math questions. And sometimes in our process of asking math questions, he asks me things like, Dad, what's a bigger number, infinity or infinity plus one? You're like, man, this kid's way, way beyond his years. And then I have to explain to him, Pierce, infinity is not a real number. It's an abstract number. It's a conceptual number that infinity is an ever-increasing number as high as we can imagine. And that's what eternity is to us. It's an ever-increasing number beyond what we can imagine. And, and when the psalm says God was God everlasting to everlasting, infinitesimally behind you, God has always been God. And infinitesimally in front of you, God has always been God And yet here in the midst of it, we last for just a wisp. Just a moment is our time. And Moses wants to put that all together for us. You sweep them away with a flood, verse 5. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. Your life is like a blade of grass. You're not here very long. God is eternal. And we, as my daughter Claire would say, are itty bitty tiny. This passage, by the way, gets quoted in the New Testament in 2 Peter 3.8. You should know it's got a very similar context. Peter wants you to know the same thing when he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years And a thousand years is as a day. Sometime this week, take time to study that 2 Peter 3 passage. Because he's taking you to the very same place that Moses, probably 1,300, 1,400 years before him, took us before Jesus existed. Not before Jesus existed, I just made a heretical comment. I call myself out publicly. Before Jesus was born on earth. It's the first time I've ever called myself out publicly. So Moses brings to light the challenge of our brevity. If God is eternal to eternal, 
If he's from everlasting to everlasting and we are but a moment, Moses brings to light this challenge of our brevity. In verse 7 he says, But we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath are we dismayed. Psalm 10, 27 says this, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. In fact, you find that even in the Ten Commandments, that if you are faithful to God, he increases your years. If you are not, he will challenge your days. It's a fascinating biblical concept, and it brings home Isaiah 53, 6. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Moses brings to light in the middle of this passage is that God may be from everlasting to everlasting, and we may be here for just a short wisp. The problem with our wisp is we're absolutely consumed with ourselves, and we're absolutely consumed with sin. And that if God could be holy from everlasting to everlasting, and we get a short little breath in the middle of it, and we make it all about sin and ourselves, we miss everything. He continues to press on you a little bit by in verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you. God knows your sin. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. And I mean, God knows all of it. Every drop of your sin, which means you're not getting away with anything with him. He's completely aware of every ounce of sin in your life. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. God knows our failures. Even our secret sins are brought into the light. From everlasting to everlasting, God is here and he is holy and he's good and he's faithful. And in our wisp, we bring about destruction. The scriptures would say, to continue to talk about my kids, that I'm more like my two-year-old daughter than I think. When my two-year-old daughter gets alone and she goes into the basement by herself, destruction happens. You can count on it. If you've got a two-year-old, doesn't matter what their name is, it's just true. See? We became Baptist all of a sudden. And my life is more like that than I think. I am so prone to destruction just as you are. In fact, I read a survey this morning that suggested that over 70% of pastors in their life experience utter moral failure at one point or another. That's not healthy. That's not great. That's not even good. We are also prone to destruction way more than we think. Moses puts that before us on a spectrum of time where God is eternal and we are a wisp. We're consumed with ourselves and we're consumed with sin. Verse 10. A guy who lived to 120 says this. The years of our life are 70. Or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are all gone and we fly away. You might get 70 years. You might get 80. You might get 90. Health cares, though Obamacare might mess us up a little, it's getting a little better. Who knows how long some of us will live, but if we live toiled in our sin, we'll make a mockery of ourselves and God. It's the effect of sin and God's grace 
that people don't live to be 200 anymore. Because he takes us home before we can make a fool of ourselves. Even in the Bible, there are tons of folks who don't finish well. King Saul started out well and died as an enemy of the Lord. Solomon started out well and ended poorly. Gideon started out well, and story after story and story could be told of men in the Bible who started well and didn't finish well, and more stories could be told of our generation. So Moses, in verse 12, brings this to a head. He says, in light of this, in light of God being God from everlasting to everlasting, in light of the fact that God has been good and right and faithful to us long before we existed, long before after we'll bodily exist on this earth the way we do now, in light of the fact that in this wisp moment we're consumed with ourselves in sin, he puts this before us and he says, teach us. This is a prayer. God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Number our days. Help us to put all of this, God, into reality. Help us to put all of it into perspective that we would understand the shortness of our lives, that we could put it all in perspective, that we could learn, and that we'd get wise, that we'd understand that our time is short and that the needs are great. And in light of all of this, Moses points a way to redemption in verse 13. And you have to appreciate this. If we're going to take most of this passage in light of, in light of Moses' life, when we turn to 13, redemption looks different. Because as Moses writes this some 3,500 years ago, Moses is writing this with no view of Jesus Christ. And when we read it and we look at it this morning, we have to look at it in light of Jesus Christ. So in verse 13, when he looks at this redemption and he says, Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your service, on your servants? Moses puts before us that the answer to our sin is not trying harder and it's not doing more. It's actually the return of Jesus Christ. That our hope is Jesus. It's the satisfaction that Moses longed for and that he'd never received. It's why, though, he and his brethren caused sin. They were never able to enter in the promised land. They were kept out of it. But you, though your sin is great, is welcomed into the promised land because of Jesus Christ. Welcomed into the promised land. So when Moses says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your, on your servants. God answered that plea for us 2,000 years ago in the life of his son. The very manifestation of this need. And in 14, when he says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Keep forgiving us though we fail. We find that to be Jesus. The manifestation of hesed or steadfast love. The only thing that will satisfy is Christ. It's the irony of our wisp. That we would spend our time looking for things to satisfy us. When it's Jesus, it'll be the only thing that ever will. That we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil. When Moses prays this in 13, 14, and 15, 
Keep in mind that this is a guy who grew up in slavery, whose people were abused. They were led out of Pharaoh by God's grace. God provided signs that they would be led out. God was so faithful to them. And we don't know when Moses wrote this psalm, but keep this picture in mind. Long after they were removed from slavery, from being beaten, from being abused, did he lead these people out into the promised land, out into the wilderness, and they would consistently yell at Moses, why did you bring us out here? Why did you bring us out of slavery? We We were fed back then. We were taken care of back then. And they were slaves back then. What God has for you is more than slavery. It's what he had for Moses was more than slavery. He has something better and he has something greater and it's Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus and in light of all these verses that have come before us in light of the reality that God is from everlasting to everlasting, in light of the reality that we are sinners, so prone to be consumed with ourselves and our sin, that verses 16 and 17 become an incredible prayer for us to pray. It becomes the full redemption, the gospel played out in this psalm. Because Moses prays in 16, let your work be shown to your servants. And let your glorious power to their children. Moses begins to pray, don't let me be consumed with the work of my hands. Don't let me be consumed with everything in front of me. Don't let me be consumed by everything I'm about. Let your work, God, I want to see you. I want to see what you're up to. I want to see what you're doing. I want to see your salvation shown to your servants. I want to see you work. And I want to see your glorious power at work. I want to see you saving. I want to see you redeeming. And I want my kids to see it too. Moses prays, calls out to God that God would reveal himself in this real way that he would be shown. And that he would be known. And that we would see his power. And of course, this means something radically different to us who follow Jesus. We want to see God and we want to see him move. And in verse 17, he takes it to another level. Because not only do we want to see God and we want to see him move, we don't want to just be spectators of it. We want to be involved. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. When Moses brings this, go- this gospel out in his psalm to full fruition, it's not just that we'd see God redeeming and working in people. It's not just that we'd see God's power expressed. People coming to salvation. Moses brings it to this very personal place where he asks God to take the work of my hands and use it for his glory and for his kingdom. That the work of my hands are not about building up me. They're not about increasing my tribe. They're not about enhancing Ben. The prayer is that God, you would take my hands and you would establish his hands in your work. Whatever that is. 
This doesn't mean you have to quit your job and be a pastor. This means if you're an accountant and you're going to do worksheets and numbers all week, pray that God would establish the work of your hands, you know, doing Excel, for his glory. And if you're a farmer and you're going to be out driving a tractor this week, it doesn't mean you have to quit that job. It just means as you're shifting gears, pray that God would establish your work of your hands for his glory, whatever that is, whatever that looks like. And if you're a student, you're about to go back to school, the work of your hands on a college campus is huge. It's not just about getting grades. It's not just about studying. Although you have to appreciate that's the greatest testimony you'll ever have to your professors. Moses' prayer in 16 and 17 becomes our prayer because in fact, Psalm 90 puts our whole life into perspective. It puts the gospel into perspective. That God has been good to us from everlasting to everlasting. We can be so tempted to be consumed with ourselves and with our sin. And God wants to redeem us. And to use us. And in Jesus Christ he does. Let your work be shown to your servants. And your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Be a part of what God's doing. Pray that he would use your hands. Next week we'll be in Psalm 121. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, when I consider the reality of Moses' life, all that he walked through, all that he endured, from murdering an Egyptian to seeing you move in ways I can't even fathom, whether that's turning water into blood or creating frogs or locusts or any other litany of the signs you produced, to walking through the wilderness in judgment, knowing that you'd never see what you'd so long to see from anything more than a distance. And yet, Father, we are thankful as a people that you don't administrate us that way anymore. Father, there are many of us here who are colossal sinners. In fact, I bet it's all of us. And yet, Father, you give us redemption. You forgive our sins through Jesus. You don't ask us to toil in the wilderness, never getting the blessings you have for us. Father, the blessings that you have for us are your Son. In him, we have everything we need for life and godliness. In him, we have every spiritual blessing. So, Father, I pray that as a church, This week, we'd wholeheartedly turn to your son. We'd turn to Jesus, who's been faithful to us from the beginning to the end. Who's been faithful from infinity to infinity. And Father, may we consider our lives the days you've given us and ask, Father, beg that you'd make them fruitful and profitable for your kingdom. 
Establish the work of our hands, God. That we could see you work and we could see your power move. Father, we love you and we are so unworthy of what your son did at the cross. And yet we say thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.